The following is Marsha Haverty's talk, What We Mean by Meaning, New Structural Properties of IA from the 2015 Information Architecture Summit. I want to talk about how I came to information architecture. I started in grad school being exposed to some of these concepts, Vannevar Bush and Doug Engelbart talking about augmenting intellect, machining associativity and hypertext theory, so Ted Nelson and others, information visualization, information seeking behavior, so sort of this amalgam of concepts. Let me understand for the first time that you can think about information abstracted from subject matter, that information can have structure, it can have perceptual properties, and it can have behavior. And so that understanding, I just, I needed to do something with information. So I got a job as an information architect, <laughs> and I went to the first information architecture summit, and I'm wafting some of the things that Lou Rosenfeld talked about, because they're still so prescient. I went to the next information architecture summit, and then contributed a paper to the IA special topic issue from JSYST, and I was really interested in information architecture as a new field without its own internal body of theory, and what did that mean, what was that like? and then 11 years flashed before my eyes. And then I finally came back to the summit in 2013 to find information architecture described as the structural integrity of meaning across context, Jorge Rengo. And to encounter this thing called embodied cognition that I've never heard of with Andrew Hinton's talk. And last year, I brought a poster on some data visualization techniques, and here we are. And now I'm at Autodesk, and I help mechanical designers collaborate around 3D geometry for product design. So if we say that information architecture worries about the structural integrity of meaning across contexts, the spirit of this talk is to really take a deep dive and zoom in on the nature of information and the nature of meaning. But it matters how we look at it. And so for this talk, we're going to look through the lens of embodied cognition. Traditional cognition says that our senses detect stuff and that stuff gets sent to our brain and our brains do all of the work of deriving meaning and understanding. Embodied cognition says that it's actually our bodies acting out in the world directly with information that participates in understanding and deriving meaning. So really it's just expanding the boundary of where meaning emerges from just the brain to the brain and the body acting out in the world. So the spirit of this talk is still to say, if we look through the lens of embodied cognition, we can actually see new structural properties of information architecture that we can't see if we just look through traditional cognition. Now, before we get to the new structural properties of information architecture, we're going to really zoom in and try to visualize the nature of meaning through the lens of embodied cognition. And to do this, we're going to build a scene. And for this scene, we're going to need the sun. So we'll stylize that and move it up there. And we'll add to our scene a tree in nature and a built chair. Now, the sun radiates light down on all the things, and all of the things absorb and reflect the light and we end up with what we know is the ambient light around us. James J. Gibson, the founder of ecological psychology in the 1960s, 
calls this the ambient energy array. And from this ambient energy array, he says we pick up surfaces, edges, and textures. But it's not these things themselves, because the light shifts, we move around objects, objects move around us. So it's actually the relationships among surfaces, edges, and textures that we're picking up from this ambient energy array. And this comes in the form of invariant structure. And J.J. Gibson says invariant structure is information. That's what information is. So by way of an example, we all know that we don't need to have seen a chair from every possible perspective to recognize it's the same chair. We recognize invariances in the relationships among the edges and the surfaces and the textures that make up the seat and the legs and the back of the chair. So back to our scene, let's add an actor observer. And we've already seen that objects radiate information in the terms in the form of invariant structure, relationships among surfaces, edges, and textures. But the actor observer brings to this her goals, her actions, and it's really this confluence of goals, actions, and information where meaning emerges. So meaning emerges in this confluence. So to roll that up into a definition, meaning emerges at the confluence of a goal-directed actor-observer engaging with information directly in the environment. So back to our scene. This is just information about objects is one type of information. The way the objects are arrayed in a layout gives us information visually about wayfinding and layout. We're also instrumented for mechanical information, touch, cold, warm, pain, and chemical information, taste and scent. And all of these are perceptual information. And there's others too. We're also instrumented for linguistic information. So words on a surface, and these days that can be a physical or digital overlay. Words through the air, and that can be spoken or projected. Gestures, we can evoke concepts with our emotions. And even our own introspection. So all of these things contribute to the environment of information that we encounter. Now we've talked about sort of the where of where meaning emerges, but let's zoom in and talk about what is this confluence? What is this thing? So for perceptual information, we can say that the invariant structure is actually affordances, these things that we are able to coordinate our behavior to, to engage with this information. And from embodied cognition, that this is called a perception-action coupling. Now an example of a perception-action coupling that's often cited in this field is the outfielder problem. How does a baseball outfielder know where to go to catch a ball? You could think that the outfielder looks at the initial trajectory of the hit, makes some calculation, and knows where to go stand and goes there and catches the ball. That's not actually what happens. What happens is the outfielder forms a perception-action coupling with an angle relationship to the ball. So if the ball is coming straight at the outfielder, and then if the ball starts to veer left or veer right, and suddenly there's a horizontal angle, the outfielder just needs to see that there's a horizontal angle and move to eliminate the angle. It's a very simple geometric relationship. And this perception-action coupling is boiled down to eliminate horizontal angles. 
there's a component for vertical too, so I'm simplifying. But you kind of get the point that in order to catch a ball, it's actually just a series of course corrections to maintain this angle relationship. And that's why outfielders appear to drift and they end up in the right spot to catch the ball. They're just participating in this coupling and maintaining it over time. So language. <laughs> Light does not reflect off of concepts. So what is that thing, that handle, that lets us interact with meaning of concepts? We don't have a name for that. I asked all the embodied cognitive psychologists. We don't have a name for that, <laughs> unfortunately. So what do we consider this coupling? We don't know yet. So that will be really interesting to see how we formulate that, and maybe we can participate in that conversation. But Sabrina Galanka, who's an embodied cognitive psychologist, sort of rolls up both the coupling we form with perceptual information and the one we form with language into an information behavior coupling. So an information behavior coupling is how and where meaning emerges in this view. But things aren't staying the same. Our goals, our actions, and the information is changing over time. And if we're gonna maintain this coupling, as our goals change, the information needs to change. As the information changes, our goals need to change. It's this co-evolution if we're gonna maintain this meaning coupling. And further, we could even say that human cognition is a state space of information behavior couplings that form, break, co-evolve with our goal-directed action and environment dynamics. So we're not just engaging with one coupling and that's our entire life. We're forming and breaking them all the time. Some are little point engagements and others need to last a lot longer. <laughs> but what does all this flux and co-evolution really say about the nature of meaning? The nature of meaning then is flow. And flows have properties. Flows can have a viscosity or ease of flow. Flows can have texture or facets to the components that's making up the content of the flow. And flows are subject to permeability in what they might be passing through. And I'm gonna talk about different ways we can use new information architecture structures to dial in these properties to suit the type of flow of meaning that we're looking for. Uh, we're gonna start with viscosity, or the ease of flow of meaning. And I wanna introduce a new information architecture construct to account for viscosity. And in order to do this, we're gonna ask the question, is information like water? So if we think of the two things that affect water, it's pressure and temperature. And if we run through all the permutations of different combinations of pressure and temperature, we end up with the familiar phase states of water, solid, liquid, and gas. And we can phase shift. We can melt a solid to a liquid, we can freeze a liquid to a solid, and so forth. So really, it's drastically different to know water if you're in the neighborhood where it's a solid versus a liquid or gas. So what I wanted to do is ask the question, what if we do the same thing with different relative amounts of linguistic and perceptual information? What do we get? When we think about perceptual information, we don't have to actively pay attention to interact with it, to glean the meaning from it. It's a tacit, reflexive kind of engagement. And in that sense, perception flows easy. It has very low viscosity. Language, though, 
is laden with awareness and associativity, and it requires our attention to actually engage with it. We have to be aware and, and enacting with it. So language is highly viscous, and it takes more work to flow. So right there, we have a little rough understanding of the areas where there's more perceptual information. It's more of a reflexive style of engaging meaning. And the areas where it's more language dominated, it's a more attentive style of engaging with meaning. But we can refine these areas a little bit further to say, well, let's look at that region where it's basically little or no language and it's, it's all perceptual information. That is a very visceral way to engage with meaning in the world. Similarly, in the area where we have all language and very little perception, I kept that little channel there, because if we have no perception, I don't think we're around. <laughs> so we have a little buffer there. This is a very conceptual area, and we're sort of wafting around in the world of ideas. Now, as we get more and more language, and we'll look at this in more detail, it requires more intense concentration. Similarly, as we have more perceptual information coming at us, it requires more intense coordination. And if we have a lot of information, it actually triggers an emotional response. And I'm not saying that this is the only place emotion occurs. We can have emotion associated with anything on the face space, but if you end up with a lot of information, you do end up with uh, associated emotional response. And if we get too much, we get overloaded and we can't function. So let's look at Twitter before they introduce the image preview. So before image preview, I would say Twitter was pretty high up in the phase space over in the linguistic dominated area, even into some intense concentration. Now, breaking that down a little bit, let's think about the goals. Anyone could have a variety of goals for going to Twitter. You know, maybe it's intrigue, you wanna come across an article or an idea or a picture that you would never see in any other way. Maybe it's the humor, maybe it's to sample some discourse of news or check on you know, what your friends are talking about or your peers, any variety of reasons. But the nature of the information on Twitter before the image preview was really dominated by language. It was a stream of words. We did have some perceptual information in the form of avatars, but those were in a neat orderly column on the side, and they were always in the same place, and they were glanceable if we wanted context. But really, our primary mode of engaging with the meaning of Twitter was scanning. But this is different than reading a book, where a book is linear and you say, and then this happens, and then this happens, and then this happens. Twitter is semantic juxtaposition. We're concept hopping. So it requires a little bit more attention to really focus and scan jumping around those concepts. And we got really good at that. And we had strategies for that. And we adjusted our behavior to that. That is how we knew the meaning of Twitter. And it was a very highly viscous, concentration-intensive behavior. Now, when Twitter introduced inline images, and I realized I forgot to put cats in there, but we ended up with these perceptual swaths interrupting our concentration-laden scanning. And suddenly, we had to adjust. And we either had to visually jump over and ignore the pictures, or mode switch, and you know, reading and conceptually hopping, and then glance and glean, and then go back. And you know we're all perfectly good at dealing with text and pictures at the same time, and we probably don't even notice it anymore. But it fundamentally changed, it phase shifted, 
what it's like to engage with meaning on Twitter. So that happened. <laughs> um, so this is a visual archive of five years of an online magazine called Infosthetics, and Moritz Steffner created this. And what it is is all of the issues categorized by color. And starting at the top, you have the most recent issues, and it goes down to the earliest issues at the bottom. And really what this thing lets you do is select a category, say architecture, and at a glance, you get a visual understanding of the distribution of the concept architecture across five years of this publication. So you can see there's some clusters down below and got a little sparse and then a few clusters near the top. You can interact with it and get more about the articles themselves. But something like the Infosthetics Visual Archive would be more down in the perceptual dominated region. This is a type of information behavior coupling that is conceptual anchors to a primarily reflexive gleaning of the distribution of categories across time. The movie Her, we have a protagonist, Theodore, who forms an entire relationship based solely on words projected in his ear. He forms a complete relationship made of language. So we would plot that way up in the corner, <laughs> dominated by language and very little perception. Shortly after that movie came out, Ben Schneiderman did a write-up, and one of the things that he said is, the future of computing will be more visual than verbal. Voice is important for human relationships, but can't keep up with the human mind's desire for information abundance and swift decisions. He wrote the information visualization book, so that's the way he thinks. But I wanted to inject that thinking there when we consider our projects. So our design projects likely fall in this general area, and I'm sure there's lots of exceptions, but primarily we have a lot of language. We deal with language, we deal with words. We do have some perceptual information in the form of how we lay out our information on a page. We give perceptual cues to navigation and to functions, and we worry about node link structure for wayfinding. But our designs end up getting phase shifted for us because of the surrounding ecosystem. We have these pervasive digital overlays and we end up phase shifting into a much more intense, sometimes emotion laden type of engagement. So pervasive digital overlays in the environment phase shift our designs to more extreme modes. That's happening and that it will only get worse over time. To mitigate this, some designs use perceptual cues to give information about system states. So some of the displays for wearable sensors and Internet of Things, you know, they've got their glowy colors and buzzy sounds and all of that. But often those perceptual cues are just notifications for state changes. Once we go to engage with it, we're phase shifted back to language. We're changing our viscosity, we're changing our mode of interacting with that. I want to kind of describe an example of fitting the nature of the information behavior coupling to the context. And this designer prototyped this way of designing a car UI dashboard control panel. And so instead of having a design where there's already interface elements and labels laid out on there, it's just a screen. And the driver puts some fingers on the screen and the interface comes to that position. And depending on the number of fingers that touch the screen, you control something different. So two fingers control the radio, three fingers control the heater, and whatever. And he's got other ways to go beyond five. <laughs> so 
all you need to do then is drag your fingers up or down to make the adjustment. And you don't have to be exactly up or exactly down. As long as you're roughly up or down, it makes the adjustment for you. So this is a perception action coupling that stays perceptual the whole time. I mean, you can glance over if you like, but it's not really necessary to make this control. And in this case, drivers are distracted. They're trying to not hit a bicyclist. They're trying to wayfind. They're probably talking to a passenger. And so a perceptual information engagement really suits the needs and the situation of a distracted driver. So when we think about the phase space of information, I think we need to consider the entire phase space in our designs. And we need to note two phase space locations, the design itself and then the design in the greater information ecosystem. And we need to decide when to use the higher viscosity of language. I mean, it may be fully appropriate, and we're a language-dominated society. That's never going away, obviously. But we need to decide when to offload some meaning to perception. The next property that I want to talk about are texture facets. And these are facets of perceptual and linguistic information that we can use to further tune what it's like to engage with the nature of the information in our designs. So let's start with linguistic texture facets. And let's look at some of the stuff we normally consider. Controlled vocabulary, facet classification, taxonomy, ontology, content strategy. And let's think about these in terms of phase space. So we could say controlled vocabulary would go in this highly language-dominated region of the face space and require a bit of concentration to really dial in what we're looking for for the terms. Taxonomy infuses a little bit of perceptual quality if we have some visual groupings and some hierarchical or even non-hierarchical structure. Faceted classification is essentially a berry-picking journey in the Marcia Bates sense all around the linguistic-dominated area of the face space by using the different facets to get around. Content strategy, if we think about that in terms of adaptive content that changes its nature for viewport size or other contextual triggers, is really this harmonious balance and intermapping across this perceptual language balanced region of the face space. There's a lot of visual, perceptual, even if we're just moving the words around, there's a lot of perceptual component to that. Ontology is an information behavior coupling. And actually, it's a series of information behavior couplings where the Invariant structure, the information in this coupling, is the relationships among the conceptual entities in the ontology. So it's that relationship that forms the meaning. Another aspect of linguistic information that we can dial is where do our concepts fall on the concept spectrum from abstract to concrete? Concrete concepts have a physical reference. They are spatially constrained, and it's easy to visualize context. So a spoon, you can see a spoon. You can easily think about a spoon in a drawer in a bowl and stirring in a pot. And so a spoon is much lower in the linguistic area of the phase space because it's very easy to contextualize. It has a lower viscosity to engage with the meaning of spoon. 
whereas something like calculus is much more abstract and it takes more concentration and has a higher viscosity to really engage with the meaning of calculus. Vannevar Bush in the 1940s built a machine called the differential analyzer. And this machine actually used physical relationships of gears and levers and mechanical movements to do calculus. And it said that those who use the analyzer acquired what Bush called a mechanical calculus or an internalized knowledge of the machine. Like a combination of motor memory and mathematical skill learned directly from the machine. Bush described how one user did not understand calculus in any formal sense. He understood the fundamentals. He had it under his skin. So this machine phase shifted calculus from this abstract, highly viscous entity that we had to somehow engage with the meaning of down to this very visceral thing that we just understood the principles about without even having to say words about it. Other ways to phase shift some more abstract concepts are metaphor, and there's a lot written about that, and context priming. So it's said that concepts are abstract not in and of themselves, but they're abstract in part because it's hard for us to think of context in which to place them. And if we help prime people with context for abstract concepts, we actually phase shift them down to be a little bit more concrete for them. Okay, so moving to perceptual texture facets of objects. I mean, there's all sorts of things we can do to dial in edges, surfaces, and textures. I mean, I'm not saying we need to be visual designers or information visualization specialists, but recognizing that these are the things that we are tuned to pay attention to and detect, we can ask the question, do we need to adjust surfaces, edges, and texture qualities to show our information objects are fixed versus movable, overlapped versus fused. I mean, some of these basic things, that's how we know our world. And when we get into the concept of wayfinding in place, I mean, we have a wealth of information about that. So past information architecture summits, all of the information architecture books. I mean, we've got a fantastic tome of knowledge around that stuff. Now, when we think about the other aspect of perceptual texture facets, from the ecological psychology point of view, there's events. Objects have locomotion, they move, they have physical transformations, and there's occlusion. So things overlap each other and they get hidden and then revealed again. But we can add to that the nature, it's just the concept of having an event for information architecture. David Kirsch, talks about the benefits of external representations. And he says once we sort of create an object around something, we can now do stuff with it, meaningful stuff. We can do rearrangement. We can make a whole bunch of the same one and try different things on each. We can explore alternatives with multiple instances. And Carl Fast has an entire framework about epistemic interactions. So these are events then we also do to representations things like chunking and cloning and collecting, composing, cutting, fragmenting, probing, rearranging, and repicturing. And so he has another offering of these events that are meaningful events that we can do to information. And really, what this is saying is we can use the materiality of diagrams, and I'm rolling up a whole bunch of things in the word diagrams. <laughs> 
physical representations, models, you know, all of that, to enact and maintain meaningful events. And so just in general about texture facets, we can use texture facets like design dials to tune what it's like to engage with the information in our designs. So the last principle I want to talk about is permeability. So what obstructs our ability to engage and maintain the flow of meaning? So if we look at the information behavior coupling, there maybe are some things that obstruct this, and there's different ways to go about looking at this. We can say that things have high permeability, so there's no obstruction, and everything is fine. We're able to engage with the invariant structure, and we have the meaning going, and everything's fine. Or all the way down to low or no permeability, where it's fully obstructed. And embodied cognition theory also gives us some principles around this that we can port over to information architecture. And a lot of these are very similar things that we already look for, we already recognize, we already test for. It's just porting them to the language of embodied cognition. So detecting structure. If I am an actor observer and I want to engage with information in the environment, if I don't recognize that structure as something I can engage with, we can't form a coupling. So that's also a spectrum. So I can't recognize it at all, all the way up to I can sort of recognize it and it's tacit and I'm ready to go. Coordinating behavior. Even if we recognize the structure that we want to interact with or engage with, if we aren't able to coordinate our behavior to that, we can't form the information behavior coupling either. And we get progressively better at that with time and practice. So for example, if we go back to the outfielder problem, you know, the first time a person catches a fly ball, they would be really lucky if they actually catch it, especially if it was hit with somebody batting number four. Structural persistence is another issue. So you know, sometimes we engage with information in just a brief moment and then we move on to something else. Other times we need that information to be there to maintain the coupling. And if the information is transient or disappears, then you know, that's another factor that breaks that meaning. So again, with the outfielder, the outfielder is forming this perception-action coupling with angle relationships to the ball. And if that sun passes in front of his eyes and he's suddenly blinded, that coupling's broken and who knows where the ball is gonna end up. I wanna introduce another aspect of permeability um, that I'm calling tolerance. And this one is how precise must our behavior be to maintain the coupling? So if we have a wide tolerance for our information behavior couplings, then our behavior can move around a bit, the information might be able to you know, shift a bit, and we can still maintain the meaning. We can still do what we need to do, get the work done. If we have a narrow tolerance, then our behavior needs to be a little bit more precise to maintain that coupling. And this kind of gets back to that car dashboard interface that I was talking about before. This is a distracted driver. They're not really precision putting their finger on the panel while they're talking to somebody else and not hitting the bicyclist. So that design has a wide tolerance. And you, know, you can drag your fingers up and down and not be precise and still maintain the flow of meaning of working with your car and changing the environment of your car. So 
it's just the concept of thinking about the precision that is required to engage with our information. And in situations needing simultaneous engagements, tolerance for precision is a design value. So to kind of roll up some of this, if we look through the lens of embodied cognition at the nature of information and the nature of meaning, we recognize that our information architecture structures participate directly in the flow of meaning. And we form that as an information behavior coupling. And further, because of this pervasiveness of information overlays everywhere, we really need to start considering the entire phase space in our designs to deal with that and maybe phase shift some of this viscous, language-laden behavior that we need to get done to perception. And I'm not saying everything should be all perceptual, but just because this particular group, we're, you know, we're so language-dominated that you know, maybe we just think a little bit beyond that. So I want to leave you with a couple of future scenarios. So let's say, what if multimodal connected environments let us select the mode of engagement per our context? What if we have dual encodings of information that let us decide when to go perceptual and when to attend to language? What if phase-space redundancy is part of our adaptive content strategy? And what if rules for digital agent behavior were information behavior couplings with specific precision tolerances? And this is just saying maybe information behavior couplings are much more resilient and simple to both understand and design than creating linear, brittle rules. When we have a full collection of digital agents that now have emergent behavior, so really, I mean, it's just to remember that at core, we are tribal hunter-gatherer poets. <laughs> and we act in the world, and we understand with things. So thank you. <laughs>
it feels like that attentive space is actually maybe a better one if you want to encourage people to engage in new behaviors and not simply try to just understand what's going on. Yeah, for sure. I mean, what you described is sort of a round trip from language to perceptual and then back again. So yeah, I think that's a perfect example of strategically using different areas of the face space. And yeah, maybe these examples were too linear of, I start here and I go there, and it's really not that simple. So yeah, I agree with you. I think in that, you know, changing behavior, once you glean what you need from the visual stuff, you know, then you need to have a conversation about it. So you need to phase shift it back up to the world of meaning. So you can put some understanding around it. And you know, you're basically dual encoding it for yourself because you understand it in a visceral sense and you're now dual encoding it back to language for yourself. So in that sense, but yeah. <laughs> Thank you. That was extraordinary. Thanks, Marcia. Right? It's extraordinary. One of the things that struck me was the idea of viscosity and permeability and change. Information as river, as water. Thinking of Heraclitus and his whole pantare, all things change, all things flow. Can you talk a little bit about the nature of the personality of meaning versus us as external people trying to discern and design for that meaning in that meaning space because I think a lot of what you're talking about is still focused on that person's concept of meaning yeah. now kind of step back a little bit to us as designing for meaning. Yeah well I mean I think still the principles of contextual inquiry and all of our methods to assess the nature of meaning. I think it's just thinking about meaning as it's not just this point thing that we measure once and, you know, oh yeah, I've got the meaning. It's this continued interaction with the information. And I don't have answers for, you know, if that changes how we test stuff, I don't know. I think it's just recognizing that nature and, you know, still doing the same things and still keeping it personal. This is not to say that suddenly it's this abstract world that we can just apply general principles on. I mean, we still need that contextual research and all of that. So I don't know if I'm answering anything. <laughs> that was Uber. Thank you. <laughs> so do you apply this in your work? Are you applying it in your work? That's the question that I want to know. Yeah. Ask politely. Thank you. Yes, I have been thinking very much about that in my work. So I'm in a new role, and one of the things that we're worrying about is helping mechanical engineers collaborate around a very visual, visceral thing that they design. And so they're in this mode of making geometry and putting fillets around stuff and punching holes and stuff, and it's a very, very visceral thing that they're doing. I mean, they have other inputs there. And when they have these moments where they need to then, oh, I need to check my design with this person who owns another piece of it, or, oh, it's time to have a customer approval cycle. How do we help them in that context ease into a phase shift of now I'm going to get into the world of language and I'm going to spin up a collaboration you know, with these other people? So yeah, I am thinking about that. Yeah. Yeah. This is not a question. This is just, wow. <laughs> Seriously, like in case you didn't catch it from the standing ovation and the additional applause, like you just gave one of the most beautiful talks about information architecture that anyone has ever given, ever. So, third applause, deserved. Okay, Abby made me cry. <laughs> 
If you enjoyed this podcast from the 2015 IA Summit, subscribe and check out the full collection at library.iasummit.org and on iTunes. The 2015 IA Summit podcasts are brought to you by the UIE All You Can Learn Library. The All You Can Learn Library will give you the skills and techniques you need for a competitive design advantage with 24-7 access to experts and UX topics. For more information, visit aycl.uie.com. That's aycl.uie.com. As always, thanks for listening.